welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Dr. Molly Reynolds. Dr. Reynolds is a senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings. She studies Congress with an emphasis on how congressional rules and procedures affect domestic policy outcomes, a little something that's quite important as it turns out. She is the author of Exceptions to the Rule, The Politics of Filibuster Limitations in the U.S. Senate. Welcome, Dr. Molly Reynolds. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Uh, Thanks for having me. Dr. Molly Reynolds, let's begin at the beginning. And we're talking about the filibuster. How would you explain to somebody who doesn't know or is a high school student or comes from another country, what is the filibuster? Yeah. So at at the highest level, um, to filibuster a measure in the Senate means to use any number of tactics to prevent it from coming to a vote. The ability of senators to do this comes from the fact that the Senate's rules generally don't put any restrictions on how long the Senate can debate a particular measure. There are some exceptions to that, but generally that's true. Um, There's also generally nothing in the Senate rules that allows for only a simple majority of senators to stop debating something and take a vote on it. So one way to filibuster a measure is for an individual senator to go to the floor, get recognized to talk about a bill, and just keep talking um, until either the bill that he or she is objecting to is pulled from the floor, or he or she gets something else that he or she wants in exchange. Uh, This is kind of the Mr. Smith goes to Washington model. We don't really see this very often anymore. We see it sometimes. Um, Good example, in 2016, Chris Murphy of Connecticut um, spent about 15 hours on the Senate floor holding up business until Republicans agreed to hold several votes on gun control issues. But most contemporary filibusters don't involve this kind of speechifying. Rather, they involve one or more senators just threatening to drag out debate indefinitely because they oppose a bill or because they want to get something else in exchange, which forces their colleagues to file in support of the measure, to file what's called a cloture motion. Um, And the cloture motion is the tool that's available to the Senate to actually cut off debate and move on to taking a vote on whatever the underlying question is, whether it's a bill or a nomination. But for legislation, it needs 60 votes to pass. So, you know, in lots of situations, when we say you need 60 votes to get things done in the Senate, this is what it's referring to, is that in order to force an end to debate um, and actually move on to taking a final vote, you need to get 60 senators in favor of cutting off. So that sounds terribly anti-majoritarian to me. And again, like super high level for the people who've maybe just heard the term filibuster and they basically understand it means that you need more than 50%, which is probably what most people intuitively think, oh, you have 50 plus one, it passes. What's the original purpose behind the filibuster? Yeah. So this is, um, I'll I'll try to do this quickly because it's kind of a long history, but Maybe the most important thing to know is that um, the filibuster as it's used in the contemporary Senate would be kind of a mystery to the founders. So the filibuster is not provided for in the Constitution. It has evolved and developed over time. Um, There are key moments um, and key choices that the Senate has made in shaping its use of unlimited debate. But again, the filibuster is not provided for it in the Constitution. The founders did not write a supermajority requirement for the Senate into the Constitution. They obviously made design choices about what the Senate should look like to suggest that they did mean for it to be different from the House. 
you know, at the at the time, senators were not popularly elected. There are two from every state, all those sorts of things. But there's no um, there's no provision for supermajority rule in in the U.S. Constitution. Basically, um, how we kind of get to what we have now is that um, in 1806, there's a, a decision made by the by the Senate. Um, it doesn't appear to have been a purposeful uh, decision or a strategic one, but there's a decision to make a change to the Senate's rules that makes possible the future uh, filibusters, um, including what we what we see now. It, this story involves Aaron Burr and kind of cleaning up the Senate's rule book. It's not the case that, again, like the Senate made this choice in 1806 and then immediately we start to see lots and lots of filibusters, but it's a, it's a key moment. Um, and I mention this because, again, there's no evidence that the Senate in 1806 said, oh, you know what, we really want to make it possible for us to debate and debate and debate and not be able to do anything. Um, that's not what uh, what history suggests. So we get this throughout then the rest of the 19th century, we get this rise in obstruction um, in, in the Senate as senators do start to figure out that they can use the, the rules of the Senate to prevent things from happening. Importantly, at various points in the 19th century, Senate leaders tried to ban filibusters and failed. And we don't actually get to a mechanism for cutting off debate, even with a supermajority. We don't get to having the cloture rule that I was just talking about until 1917, when Republican senators were um, filibustering a proposal from President Woodrow Wilson to arm merchant ships. And this becomes a contentious political issue. Wilson is able to use kind of political pressure on Senate Republicans and the Senate generally to change the the rules of the Senate to create a way to cut off debate. Um, And I I mentioned this episode because it also, I think, tells us something important about the long sweep of the filibuster's history, which is that, you know, we hear senators now, we've heard senators in the past talk a lot about how the filibuster is part of the tradition of the Senate. They talk about it in really principled terms. But at the end of the day, the changes that we've seen to the filibuster, to the rules of debate in the Senate, how the Senate works, are really intimately connected to policy questions. So as we start to think about the potential future of the filibuster, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what is the issue? What are the issues on which we might see one party, currently the Democrats who have the majority, feel sufficiently frustrated that they can't make progress on, that they would be willing to change the way the Senate works to get that done. All right. Well, you just led me to my next question here, which is that, you know, you explained what the filibuster is, uh, the original purpose, which I feel like as a side note, there are so many times where I'm having discussions and I say, the founders would really be rolling over in their graves or spoiler alert, this actually isn't in the constitution. And, you know, the fact that in some ways I think it's not being used as intended. And then you said, this is basically inextricably intertwined with policy. And right now it is Democrats in the majority. And this was going to be kind of my next question anyway, which is basically you write about how rules and procedures affect policy outcomes. So before we talk a little bit more about maybe ways to reform the filibuster or whether or not it will be eliminated, can you talk to us about how it will play out in terms of policies that people care about? I mean, are there bills that won't become laws because of the filibuster in the next few months, few years? Yeah, so this is a great question. Um, If we think about kind of 
the long list of things that the Democratic majority, um, Democrats enjoy unified control of Washington right now. There's a long list of things that they want to do. And, and we could generally divide those things into two categories. One are things that they can conceivably do using the budget reconciliation process, which has limits to it, but can be used to make lots of budgetary changes. So the um, as we speak, the Democrats in the House and the Senate are working on a legislative proposal to address the COVID crisis that is quite likely to move through this avenue of the legislative process. So it could um, almost certainly make changes to um, healthcare spending. Um, it'll probably make changes to unemployment insurance. There's lots of things that can be done through this process. There's a big open question, for example, about whether you can use the budget reconciliation process to raise the minimum wage. That's an open question. That's something that people really care about, appropriately so. And so we don't know whether um, the Democrats would be able to use the process, um, the reconciliation process to raise the minimum wage or not. We'll find out, almost certainly. On the other side are things that definitely cannot be done using the budget reconciliation process, but are still really important. Um, and here I would put things perhaps most prominently on the Democrats' agenda is voting rights legislation and democracy reforms. So listeners may recall, it feels like a million years ago at this point, but I believe it was just last August that former President Obama went to um, the funeral of Representative John Lewis and said, if it takes eliminating the filibuster in the Senate to pass a new Voting Rights Act in honor of John Lewis, then we should do that. And who knows if that will happen? Uh, but that, I think, is a really important example of something that like, absolutely cannot be done using a process that um, gets around the filibuster, but is really important um, and that a lot of people care about and may ultimately be a really active debate over whether it's worth eliminating the filibuster to get that done. The last thing I'll say on this question, though, is that... Um, as we have this conversation about like what can be done in the presence of the filibuster, what can't be done in the presence of the filibuster, it's important to remember that the rules aren't magic and that they don't prevent agreement or force agreement where agreement doesn't already exist. So when we think about, again, the, the reconciliation process and the things that the Senate might be able to do with a simple majority vote, like there are rules that allow them to try and pass certain types of bills this way. But if the underlying Democratic caucus doesn't agree on what those policy proposals should be, then like the rules aren't going to force them to come to that agreement. That's a really important point about you know, the real world examples. And I'm so glad that you brought up voting rights and political reform issues, because those are foundational issues for so many other things. I mean, if there's one thing that we saw play out in the 2020 election, it's how important voting laws are and that, you know, we can spend a lot of time thinking about, as we should, you know, immigration, the environment, tax, criminal justice, but if we're picking and choosing who can vote, then all of those things could already be predetermined. Now, you explained the the filibuster and how it's used and some specific policy outcomes just now. Could you give us a real world example of the budget reconciliation process? Because I feel like I understand it, but I don't know that if somebody said, oh, you know, Give me a famous example of how that could play out uh, or how it already did play out. I don't know that I'd really be able to verbalize it particularly well. 
Yeah, so I will use an example actually of a failed uh, attempt to use reconciliation because I think that it, it both tells us about what you can do through the process and draws really important attention to the point I was just making about how even when you um, are operating without the threat of a filibuster in the Senate, um, that in a lot of cases, if the agreement isn't there, um, the rules aren't going to make your members agree on what they want to do. So Four years ago, um, right about this time, uh, when uh, Trump has uh, been inaugurated, Republicans have control of both the House and the Senate, the uh, congressional Republicans decide that the first thing that they're going to do is try to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. They get started on this goal right out of the gate. Um, they actually get started on some important parts of the process before Trump is even inaugurated at the very beginning of um, January 2017. They go to work writing this reconciliation bill that would repeal and replace Obamacare. And then they get ready to vote on it in the House in March. And last minute, they pull it from the floor because they don't have the support of uh 218 Republicans. They don't have agreement on what they want a bill repealing and replacing Obamacare to look like. So the House works on it some more. They have a vote. I believe it's the beginning of May. Uh, they ultimately do pass something. It goes over to the Senate. The Senate, again, where reconciliation is so important because it can't be filibustered, is working on its own version of the proposal. The Senate can't come to agreement on what they want this to look like. At the end of July in 2017, Mitch McConnell, the majority leader at that point, says, all right, I'm going to try and use like the momentum that comes from having a floor debate on something to force my members to actually agree on, on something. And they can't do that. The beginning of August, we get the famous middle of the night. John McCain comes to the Senate floor and says thumbs down on an ACA repeal. And then that's more or less that sort of has a, a one last zombie last gasp of life in September. But that's basically more or less um, where Republicans attempts to repeal the ACA, which they had at that point been promising to do for seven years where they died. And that was, again, that's a case where they tried to use the reconciliation process. They tried to use these rules that allow them to legislate without the threat of a filibuster in the Senate to get a hugely important to them policy goal accomplished and couldn't do it because there wasn't the underlying agreement on what they wanted that proposal to look like. Um, the last thing I'll say on this question is it is important to note that, as I mentioned earlier, the reconciliation process isn't unlimited. There's a set of complicated rules, several of which fall under the heading of what we call the bird rule that limit the ways the process can be used. So there there are folks who will argue that, oh, if the Senate hadn't been constrained by the Byrd rule, if it hadn't had to operate in this pretty narrow box um, of legislative procedures that the reconciliation process creates, maybe then they could have ultimately agreed on something if they were operating under kind of an unlimited uh, simple majority threshold. I don't know if that's true. So who knows? But uh, again, if we're looking for a recent example of the reconciliation process and both its strengths and its limits, I think that's a good one. That's such a good example because I think so many people, one, we think about healthcare and a lot of people think about whether or not if they lose their job, they will face bankruptcy if they get sick. And two, there's, you know, if there are a few images from the Senate floor that 
we remember, I do think it's the late Senator John McCain walking over, you know, putting his thumb down and determining the fate of healthcare for millions of Americans. And yeah. it's, I mean, it's, I am, I, I'm unusual, but I can remember exactly where I was, um, exactly what I was doing. I was sitting, sitting on my couch, regretting that I had eaten all of my reserved snacks because it was the middle of the night. And I was still watching the Senate, but it was a hugely consequential moment. And really highlights, I think, the way that Senate procedure, and this is like what I try to do in my work, the way that would seem like really arcane and complicated rules and procedures actually have huge effects on people's lives. All right. That brings me to two equally important questions. One, what were the snacks that you ate that night that you were regretting that you had finished? (laughs) Oh, I, that is a good question. If we're thinking about my like usual snack preferences, it was almost certainly some kind of peanut butter cookie and some Chex Mix. That's disappointing to hear. Now, the second question, um, you said, and I think this is so important, and I spend time talking to people about this in the election law field where, you know, you talk about like redistricting, it's not that sexy, but it really matters. Voting rights, campaign finance. And you said you spend a lot of your time talking about how arcane policies really affect people's lives. And I know I just asked you for an example and you gave one, which I thought was, you know, really powerful talking about the Affordable Care Act. Because this is really, frankly, what we try and do on this podcast, which is talk about laws and rules and draw a line to people's daily lives. Are there maybe, is there one other example where you wish you could tell people, this is why the Senate procedures or this is why the congressional procedures matter. This is how your life is affected every day by that. Um, sure. So one thing we have, we've focused mainly so far on legislation, but I'll, in this case, I'll talk about the Senate's procedures for confirming nominees, including nominees to the federal bench. So in 2013, the Senate, then in the control of Democrats, made a change um, to the number of votes needed to cut off debate um, and move on to confirmation for lower federal court appointees, so to the district courts and the circuit courts. In 2017, after having refused to confirm Merrick Garland, Republicans made a similar uh, change to the Senate's procedures for considering nominees to the Supreme Court. And so now, again, you only need 51 votes, a simple majority, to cut off debate on these judicial nominations. And so if we look, say, back at the federal judiciary as it's been shaped by the four years of the Trump administration, we see, you know, much of what the Senate spent those four years doing was putting new judges on the federal bench. Um, It put three new justices on the Supreme Court. Um, And so as we think about what that shape of the federal judiciary means for decisions that judges will make for 10, 20, 30 years going forward that affect all kinds of aspects of people's lives, that's another case where this both ability to change the way the Senate operates with only a simple majority vote, which is how um, they made this change in 2013 and the change in 2017. And then what the Senate's done with that simple majority threshold for confirming federal judges since then, I think is just another um, really useful example of how this all matters. Well, now you've hit on one of my favorite topics, which is how much the judiciary affects our daily lives. And you've tied it to your area of expertise. And I'm so 
glad that you did that because, you know, I, I used to say this in out of, I don't know, year two of the Trump administration, I would say he could leave tomorrow and we would feel the effects of the Trump administration for decades and decades because he was so efficient at nominating and getting confirmed federal judges. And I really appreciate that you tied that to Senate procedures. And again, it's not just legislation, folks. You know, it's also how the Senate conducts its business. And obviously, advice and consent is one of those key areas. Now, this isn't what I had planned to ask you next, and it's maybe a strange question, but are Republicans just better at using procedures than to their advantage than Democrats? It seems to me, or maybe it's Senator Mitch McConnell, that people always say he's a master of, you know, Senate procedure. And I don't mean this to sound like a, I'm asking for a partisan assessment, but have Republicans just been more successful at using these procedures to their advantage? So I think, um, I'm not sure I would say that Republicans are quote unquote better, but there is a pretty big imbalance, kind of a structural imbalance between the two parties and what they can and can't do that are uh, that is important to them and their voters using the Senate's procedures. And so if we think about kind of what are or have been the top priorities for congressional Republicans over the past five to 10 years. It's been, again, confirming conservative federal judges to the bench, and it's been cutting taxes. There are other things that Republicans have talked about doing legislatively, but when you as a a more conservative party are more focused on kind of stopping things than doing lots of things, um, you have, as I think Republicans do at present, have a more limited legislation legislative agenda. And now we can confirm federal judges without needing to uh, overcome the threat of a a filibuster. And um, to go back to reconciliation, one of the things you can do through the reconciliation process is make changes to the tax code. So the big 2017 tax cuts were actually also done through the reconciliation process. So for the Republicans, you know, these are I would argue their two biggest priorities or certainly two of their biggest priorities, and they can do those without the threat of a filibuster in the Senate. For Democrats, on the other hand, um, the Democrats as kind of a governing ideology are much more about an activist federal government, much more about making big policy change, much more, again, about kind of passing legislation that does big things. And so and the, the Senate's rules as they stand right now are more limiting to that kind of agenda versus the kind of agenda that I think contemporary Republicans have. And I, um, when people ask me about sort of the future of the filibuster, um, I always say that I, I don't have a crystal ball. If I did, I would be doing something other than talking about Senate procedure. But it's not clear to me that how um, sort of enduring or stable this kind of distribution can be going forward. That as Democrats find themselves more and more unable to deliver on the kinds of things that they tell voters that they want to do when they ask voters to send them to Washington, that this imbalance, um, this kind of structural gap between what the parties want to do and what the rules um, as they're currently articulated in the Senate permit them to do, that that's going to be a bigger and bigger challenge as we go forward. Well, you answered my last question already, which is, what do you think is going to happen? Are we going to eliminate the filibuster, which I assume you um, enjoy as much as I 
uh, love kind of in the very beginning of an election cycle, who do you think is going to get the nomination? Um, and the answer is, you know, I really don't know. And I literally or figuratively ate my snacks too quickly to answer that question. Um, but, and, and you answered my next question a little bit already, but I think I want to end with this. I mean, you are one of the nation's experts on procedures and specifically the filibuster. And if you were designing the Senate from the beginning, would you keep the filibuster? Would you keep some aspect of it? Or if you could, you know, wave a magic wand, would you just junk it completely and say, you know, 50 plus one, that's what we're doing here? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't think if I were designing the Senate from scratch, I would um, include the filibuster um, or the requirement that you need a supermajority to cut off debate. Um, but it's also true that like we're not designing the Senate from scratch. Um, and so when we think about kind of what needs to happen going forward and what will happen, I think the question of kind of what is the issue on which party most actively right now, the Democrats, because they have the majority. What is the issue on which they would be sort of compelled to eliminate the filibuster in order to get done? Um, I think is the, like, when people ask me, like, what do I think is going to happen? This is what I say. I say, I don't know, um, but what you should be asking a different question. You should be asking, is there something out there that Democrats want to do um, and are unified around enough that they're going to be willing to make a big change to the way the Senate works to get it done? What is that issue? And when will they reach the point at which they feel sufficiently frustrated to make that change? And again, I don't know what the answer to that question is, but that's the question that I think is really, uh, really important to ask. Because the way that I think about this is that if you think of the filibuster in its current practice as like a dam preventing the Senate from approving lots of new legislation, there's going to be something that breaks the dam. But once you break the dam, there's lots of other things that are upstream from that dam that are going to flow through more easily once you've gotten rid of the dam. And they themselves might not be so important that they're going to be the thing that finally breaks the dam, but they're like, you're going to have a different world um, and a different course of the river to continue the metaphor once you've made that change. And so um, kind of thinking about those questions um, for me um, are, is kind of the, the, central, um, the central issue. I now understand a lot more, and I'm deeply impressed that you were able to keep that metaphor going for so long, because <laughs> I'm not sure I could have done it. Now, um, Dr. Molly Reynolds, we've learned a lot from you, and we learned a little bit about you. As loyal listeners of the Passing Judgment podcast know, I always end the podcast by asking my guests the same three questions to learn even more about you. So hopefully these will be fun. Um, question number one. Which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? Oh, man. I feel like the answer to this question has to be like someone, uh, if I'm going to like stay like religiously on brand here, um, it's going to be, uh, I might say, just because I'm so fascinated by the inner workings of the Senate, um, I might say, uh, say Lyndon Johnson. I would be so interested to just like hear more about what it was like um, to um, to uh, be, uh, be a senator um, uh, and to do what he did. 
Let's see if there's an on-brand answer to the next one, which is you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal. What is it? In the spirit of what has been my greatest COVID guilty pleasure, I'm going to say um, I'm bringing some ice cream. Well, you're going to need that on the, a desert island. It might get hot. Um, I know. I, I should say that I, I hadn't thought through the how I would keep the ice cream cold on my desert island. Um, this, is, this is why I think about Senate rules and not about, um, say, uh, the grocery supply chain for a living. But. Uh, final question. You get one superpower for one hour. What is it? That's a good question. Um, so I have a child who doesn't yet talk um, and it might be to just like get him uh, the ability to explain to me for an hour um, what is making him unhappy. Um, so that, uh, uh, so that I think is lots of, uh, lots of parents of pre-verbal children um, can empathize with. Uh, that's a source of a lot of frustration uh, in our house. And so, uh, so that might be, um, that might be what I go with, at least at this point in my life makes total sense. Dr. Molly Reynolds, thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you for having me. You can find Molly Reynolds on Twitter at Molly E. Reynolds. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, on Instagram, where I'm trying to be slightly more active on Passing Judgment Pod. Thank you to the listeners for your support. We love having these conversations with you. And I love these conversations where we can tie what sounds like, as Molly said, these kind of arcane rules and procedures and explain how it affects your daily life. So everybody have a great day and we'll see you next time.